bad news is good news. Tell me about all the shit and I'll fix it. Criminals don't wait for an invitation. They hack whatever they like. The Internet Bug Bounty, or IBB. It's a non-profit. We collect donations from wealthy companies and institutions. And then we turn around and use that money to sponsor bounties for open source projects who can't pay for the bounties themselves. We engineers and nerds will always think that technology is the solution. That's incorrect. In security, humans are the solution. Hi, I'm Guy Pojarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeats.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for tuning back in. Today, we have uh, an amazing guest, Martin Mikos from uh, Hacker One. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks for the invitation, Guy. Uh, so, Martin, you've done a lot in your career uh, on it before Hacker One. So, you know, I have a lot of questions and topics I want to talk to you about. But uh, before we dig in, give us a you know a brief history of time. You know, what were your key activities and how you got to being CEO of Hacker One? Yes, I'll start with the present, meaning Hacker One. We hack for good. We organize bug bounty programs, vulnerability coordination programs, and crowdsourced pen testing. That's what we do. I've been CEO for nearly three years now. Many people know me more from what I did before that, which was in open source software. And most people know me from having been the CEO of MySQL, yeah, the, the, the first yeah. and the last <laughs> and the only CEO from 2001 to when the company was acquired by Sun in 2008, and then I stayed another year. So I come to the whole topic of security from the world of developing in a collaborative way, developing infrastructure software. Yeah. And I can admit that when I joined MySQL and even before that, I didn't care about security. I couldn't spell the word security, I'm sure. Yeah. It was not on my radar. So when we now look around and find all this software that's not secure, I know where it came from. It came yeah. from people like me. Yeah, so now I'm here to fix that problem, repent and get get everything in shape <laughs> yeah. and sort of and ask for forgiveness for whatever I've done wrong in my life. It's always That's good to me. sort of have empathy for your uh, for your users, right? You know, for the people coming in. You know, you've been in that position. You probably will be again, right? Even yeah. the most security experts who talk to security companies, and oftentimes you'd find that in the development process, there's still not enough attention given to the security practices not themselves. Not nearly, not nearly. I mean, it's terrible. It's completely terrible. But yeah. but we don't care wh- whether it's terrible or not. We know we can bring positive change, and we will do a little bit of change or a lot of change, whatever it takes, but time will cure every problem. Yep, and you know, it starts with caring, right? It does. <laughs> what we must know, this is true both in open source and in security, that those people who care the most can also be the most difficult to work with. Right. And the power of a collaborative model is that you can collaborate without agreeing you agree on the mission, but you may disagree on a lot of details, yet you can collaborate. And that is actually something that it's a passion of mine, something that drives me to figure out how do you get people to work together who don't really agree on anything. A lot of what you do is this sort of world of bug bounties, you know, today with HackerOne, right? You deal with sort of bringing this community of people looking to find vulnerabilities. 
generally frowned upon action in sort of the legal side and then that, that the world is evolving to sort of accept with sort of finding vulnerabilities in someone's code and reporting those and you're trying to make all of that a positive action. So I think a lot of that comes down to sort of collaboration around a fairly finicky topic. You know, it's almost like feedback receiving. Let's dig into that a bit. Like, so first, like, can you tell us a little bit about what a bug bounty is and then we can talk about these complexities. Yeah, so bug bounty is about paying somebody for finding the weaknesses in your own software. And it's emotionally very hard to get there because you have to tell the world that you are not perfect and that you would like to hear the bad news. So you must have this mindset of saying, bad news is good news. Tell me about all the shit and I'll fix it. And it's not nice to say that. Like many people don't go for their medical checkups for that reason. Yeah. They don't want to know. Yeah. So you have to have the readiness to want to know. But once you do that and you tell the world that you are interested in input, then you'll get it. There are hundreds of thousands of white hat hackers in the world. If you tell them that you would like to know what's wrong with your system, they'll tell you. <laughs> and fortunately, we have a model here where we pay money to those who find it, and we pay based on the severity of the find. So there's a, a baked-in business model that works beautifully, so that the best hackers get the best payments over time. Not sort of in every single instance, but it's a very fair system where I pay for you to tell me what's wrong with me, and the worse the problems are that you find, the more I'll pay you. But I pay nothing if you find nothing. Right. They're very much the success model there. Yeah. So bug bounties is, is an interesting model. You know, I'm, I'm a fan. We use it here at Sneak as well. How do you find people's approach to it? It's like when you have those first conversations with somebody that has not run a bug bounty program, you know, what types of, of questions or, or objections come up? The, the first question typically is, okay, how do I know that I'm not inviting criminals if I open a bug bounty program? And when we get that question, we stop, we look at our customer and we say, how do you know that you don't have criminals attacking you right now? And then we discuss the notion that criminals don't wait for an invitation. They hack whatever they like. So what you do in a bug bounty program is you invite additionally the good guys to hack. But for many, it still feels awkward to go out and say, please come and, and hack me. But then when you think about it rationally, you realize that, yes, it actually, it can only bring a positive change. It can only improve the situation. And it's true, the bad guys may be hacking me right now. So that's question number one. It's sort of a philosophical and yeah. emotional even. It's a really good point that's not intuitive, which is like you're saying, come hack me. But really, again, the people that weren't waiting for the invitation would have been doing that already. Exactly. Uh, so it's not really that much of a change. And we don't give any benefit to the hackers other than if they find something. So a criminal would never sign up with us because they can't gain anything. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, we will know who they are. We'll know from where they hacked. We'll know their identity if we're paying them a bounty. Is there a difference around the monitoring of it? You know, so like if I was playing devil's advocate to that, I would say, well, but like when you're monitoring your system, then you are looking for these types of attacks and you try to block them and you know get alerted and, and respond to it. When you turn on a bug bounty, do you do you lower those defenses? Like or is there anything that makes you more susceptible? Oh, that's a great question. And technically, yes, for some companies they do that. If they have very strict monitoring of their attack surface and they see every attempt coming in, when they run a bug bounty program, they may actually whitelist some IP addresses. They may ask the hackers to come through a VPN so that they can see it happening. 
that's technically elaborate and it works. What we must remember is, however, that hacking, security hacking that we do, works best when it's diverse and free. So you get the best hackers if you don't put such restrictions. Because the best hackers, they don't want to mess with a VPN. And so it turns out that the best programs are actually open to everybody and they don't track the VPN. But but that's up to our customer to decide. And how often do these programs run on on the production sites versus running on you know some 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 sample side or sort of some site site nearly all of our programs run production code and production sites and there's a good reason for that because we want to find the exact vulnerabilities that otherwise could have been used by a criminal and there's no need in finding vulnerabilities that are not there in production state so yep. best to hack production but we also have exceptions here for instance our customer is Panasonic Avionics world's largest maker of in-flight entertainment systems. Mm-hmm. We hack them on a test device, not in an aircraft, not yeah. while in flight. Yeah. So yes, there are many situations Some where safety you, gaps uh, yes, uh, trump yeah. those uh, advantages. <laughs> exactly. But most of it is live production, websites, mobile apps, APIs, typically. Okay, cool. So this is, this is the, you know, I, I cut you off a little bit, right? We talked about the first objection the being that yes. one. You know, what's, the what next, next one, which is a very valid one. It's sort of sad, but valid. We have companies who say, okay, maybe you can tell me about my vulnerabilities, but guess what? I already have 100 that I'm unable to fix. So why would I ask for more? And that's a more serious question in the sense that you're right. If you can't fix them, why would you even bother to know about them? The reason then, the way we discuss it, we say, okay, if you can fix only 100 or only 50 or whatever your capacity is, make sure you fix the most severe ones. Mm -hmm. So you should run a program and tell in the program that you're focused on only on the very severe vulnerabilities and make sure you're not fixing some low severity stuff that doesn't matter. Right. That's one. And secondly, if you are unable to fix the bugs in your code, then you have a bigger problem that you need to fix anyhow. You need to deprecate the code you need to get rid of your vendors. You need to hire more software engineers. I don't know what you have to do, yeah. but if you are unable to fix vulnerabilities and bugs in your code, you are not on a path to success. And I believe that soon enough, governments will pass laws to stipulate that every company must be capable of receiving vulnerability reports and capable of fixing. Otherwise, they are will not be allowed to carry consumer information. Yeah, that's We're not there yet, but I think we are heading that direction. Yeah, it's an interesting direction. So, you know, first of all, fully agreed, you know, you want to have the information, you know, you want to know about all the vulnerabilities so you can prioritize accordingly, you know, even if it uh, even if it's a little bit harder to prioritize a long list versus a short list. So, you know, maybe getting a little bit more into like indeed that remediation process, you know, who do you see engaged? So, like somebody comes along, gets a bug bounty report, you know, a vulnerability has been reported, what kicks in in the organization? You know, does it go to development? Does it go to like some security triage? Who receives it? What's the path to remediation that you see most often? In the most beautiful case, the report that comes into HackerOne, you click one button and it moves over to Jira, if Jira is what you're using. Yep. It's passed over to software engineering with a high prioritization and they'll start fixing the bug. And when they fixed it, they marked it as fixed. It comes back into HackerOne and we know that the vulnerability has been removed. That's the most beautiful execution here. 
the many other aspects of it. You don't need to use Jira. You can use whatever tool you like. Yeah. Once you've fixed it, you should collect information about your fixes and go back to the software design uh, stage and make sure you don't create the same sort of problems again. So if you can loop back into your software architecture, your software design, your choice of libraries, your choice of frameworks, and then you say, okay, if we are getting these vulnerabilities all the time, let's change something in how we code. And that's how an organization will evolve to a new level of, of security. And do you see do you see that learning in practice? So like in concept, for sure, I know you report those issues, people get reported, they get remediated. Do you see a decreasing trend? I mean, if somebody got, you know, a dozen reports about cross-site scripting vulnerabilities and fixed them, hopefully, you know, already a better state than not. Um, do you see the frequency of these cross-site scripting type issues decreasing over time? We do. We do see a difference. It's a little bit like when you make popcorns in your microwave oven. In the beginning, it pops a lot, and then it's less and less and less, which is a good sign. You know that it all has popped. And it's a little bit the same with vulnerabilities that you will have more in the beginning and then it will slowly start shrinking. Of course, you push new code, so that brings them back. But but still with well-behaved programs, we do see it going down. And some of our most software conscious customers who really pay attention to this, they show a clear trend of cross-site scripting bugs going down because they are eradicating, systemically eradicating them from their frameworks or from their software development environment, yeah. essentially. And I guess the, the beauty of it is that if it is harder for the hackers participating in the bug bounty program to find a vulnerability, it would you know, equally or similarly be harder for an actual attacker uh, to find it. So those bugs that remain there are harder to find. You know, they're, exactly. uh, they're indeed sort of harder for a, for a real-world criminal to uh, And to what do you do then if you run a program? you start increasing your bounty values. So you can start the program by saying, for the highest severity, we pay 5,000. Yeah. Then after a while, you say, no, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. And you keep going up and up in price when the number of vulnerabilities go down. This is how you ensure attention from the hackers. Because they know that there are fewer possible bugs to find, yeah. but they also know the price is increasing. So the bounty is increasing, they stick to you. Yeah, crowd economics in action there, Exactly. Right? Now we take the next logical step. It means that when you look at bug bounty programs, the highest bounty they pay is a measurement of their security posture and their security hygiene. It's only the ones with good security that can afford to pay high bounties. Right, and that expect a certain... Like you expect at the end of the day a small number of valid reports. Yes. Otherwise you're going to go bankrupt. Exactly. <laughs> we'll do that. Exactly. Cool. So this is bug bounties. You know, as I said, I'm a fan. I think they're working well, and so people are starting to open up to it. You know, this uh, this concept I guess came from the worlds of like Google and Facebook, right? That you know originally the top tier happens, and companies like HackerOne kind of make it accessible, allow you know the non giants to uh, to sort of at a reasonable effort go off and open that up and expand it. And I fully recommend everybody use it. What if you're not a commercial entity? You know, what if you are, you know, MySQL or that one even had a, you know, at least a financial entity behind it? You know, like what if you are an open source project, you know, non for profit? What do you do then? Well, as the former CEO of MySQL, I have to say, MySQL was a commercial entity, and <laughs> we figured out one of the most fantastic business models for open source back in the day. So, yeah. which we're very proud of. Yeah. We we managed to combine 
the good ethos with, with making money. Yeah. But of course, there are many open source projects that have no budget. Uh, fortunately, the world is seeing the value of this now. So there are several initiatives in play now to support them in their bug bounty programs. And we have started together with other companies an initiative called IBB or the Internet Bug Bounty. It's a non-profit. We collect donations from wealthy companies and institutions. And then we turn around and use that money to sponsor bounties for open source projects who can't pay for the bounties themselves. So that's a way of getting security hackers to focus on open source projects. But actually, the situation is even better. So many hackers have so strong belief in transparency and therefore in open source software, they'll do it for free. Many of them say, I don't need any bounty. If it is an open source product, I'll hack for free. I'll report my vulnerabilities for free. If you pay me a bounty, I'll give it back to you or I'll give it to charity. So there's a lot of goodwill in that space. And IBB is just one. There are other similar initiatives. So the problem is not the funding. The problem is typically to find the project maintainers who will take the time and have the discipline to actually fix old technical debt. Right. Because we know it's much more fun to develop new stuff Indeed. than to fix the old. Yeah. So having the discipline to go back and fix something that you created with good intent, but it just wasn't perfect. That's yeah. the real bottleneck. Fully agreed. You know, we've seen with this report about sort of the state of open source security, and we uh, we surveyed a bunch of maintainers, and you know, generally speaking, most people just have no idea how to approach security. You know, they would not have a disclosure policy on their on their project. They've never audited their code. Most of them, when confronted, and granted, there's a probably a bit of a selection bias for those who chose to even answer the survey claim that if an issue was reported, they would reply, I forget the stat, but it was you know, a substantial amount of them talked about replying within a week or within a month. But I think none of them really consider that in volume. You know, like They don't consider uh, how would they approach it there. That's where I would say that Linux Foundation is doing wonderful work and they have the CII, the Core Infrastructure Initiative, which is there to help open source projects do the maintenance of the code and have people on staff who are ready to fix things. Because we should never make it unattractive to produce new open source code. If yeah. we put too many obligations on people, they'll just don't, not do it. Yeah. So we have to let it be really happy and fun and positive. But then we must also have the discipline side of saying, okay, this library or this product is now so common and so important that we need to hire full-time maintainers who will take joy in maintaining the code. Yeah. And it's doable. It's absolutely doable. So, so for those kind of open source projects that, that don't address an issue, do you make those vulnerabilities open? Do you think we should kind of make those vulnerabilities that have been found via a bug bounty program have been responsibly disclosed to um, you know, a maintainer? Uh, and they, for potentially good reasons, including kind of lack of bandwidth, did not address it. Do those bugs make it to, to the public eye? I think it's a question not about open source, but in general, meaning if a vulnerability has been found and the owner of the software does not take action, what should other people do? I used to think that you have no right to impose any anything on anybody, so you should just keep it secret. Now I've changed my own viewpoint. I do believe it's in society's 
interest that we publish it. And I would point to Google's Project Zero. Mm -hmm. They do security research, they find vulnerabilities, they report them to the owners of the systems, but if the owners don't do anything, they will go and publish it unilaterally. So there you see a commercial entity like Google deciding to do that because they think it is in the interest of our digital society. And I tend to agree today that we can't, if you produce code and it's used by many people on the internet, then you have a responsibility for the collective. Yep. And if you're not ready to take that responsibility, then keep your code for yourself. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I think fundamentally security through obscurity just doesn't work. Like if you're going to hide it, you know, it's not going to stay hidden for long. And you know, the attackers or the bad guys are well incentivized uh, and invest much more in finding those issues and then exploiting them versus the defenders who oftentimes are kind of looking for, for easy pickings. So by making an issue you know, known, uh, then it becomes something that is much more within reach for somebody to protect themselves against, ideally because there's a fix and you just need to embrace it, but sometimes in other means if it hasn't been fixed, or at least assess its impact on your systems. Yeah, you and I will agree that openness is great and collaboration is great and it's the only way to achieve security, but the world doesn't agree with us yet. Yep. The cybersecurity market is $100 billion a year. And the majority of those dollars go into products and services that are secret, not collaborative, not sharing anything, and not having any transparency in what they do. So the world is wasting a lot of money on old school security practices and products yeah. that just don't cut it in today's digital world. So let's talk a little bit about the world, right? Sort of about this evolution of, of the world to maybe accept at first, bug bounty, you know, subsequently transparent security. There's a whole desire, right? The whole DevOps resolution or DevOps evolution, revolution came about, you know, trying to aspire to sort of a transparent environment, right? Where people, they have these blameless environments. We have these sort of blameless cultures. We talk about it. And yet, like every time there's a, in the security world, first of all, Every time there's a breach, you know, like the first two lines are, you know, so and so got fired, right? There's, it's almost like, you know, by the, that's like the, uh, the 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 knee jerk reaction is to fire somebody, and then you know it's scary to like stand up on stage and talk about you know a breach that has happened, <laughs> or, or even that has nearly happened, right? And sharing those results, the the bug bounty element of it, vulnerability disclosures, you know, I feel maybe I'm a little bit biased is in a positive trajectory. People are increasingly embracing it. What drivers do you see kind of pushing us forward in this momentum, getting this like world of cyber to, to embrace openness, to embrace transparency? Do you see that coming I, about? I think you said it. You said blameless. It is so important. And we can learn it from the airline industry. In airline safety, they have a blameless attitude. They will never blame anybody for any mistake. And they'll share the information across all competitors. That is why flying is so safe today. And we, in our ignorance or stupidity in the software world didn't apply the same rules. We should. And I'll give you a concrete example. It's sort of not security, but it's about being blameless. GitLab, you know, the company, they had an outage. No, more than an outage. They mistakenly deleted their production data. And when that happened, they made a decision to go completely open about what was going on. So they created, I forget what it was, maybe a Google Doc that was live where they shared with the whole world how they were dealing with the issue. 
And they were completely blameless. They talked about developer number one and developer number two, and one of them had deleted the data. They never put blame on these people. They never said who it was. They just said, this happened. These yeah. are great people. And it was terrifying to see the moments, minute by minute, hour by hour. But afterwards, when they got everything back and sort of resurrected the site and, and, and people were back online, they had so much goodwill from their audience because they hid nothing and they blamed nobody. So if we can take that single example from GitLab and apply it to software security and other aspects of the software development lifecycle, we will be in much better shape. So challenging that a little bit, you know, security is still different, right? They deleted the data, they didn't, you know, expose it to somebody else. Like, do you think there will be this notion of trusting because of transparency would extend far enough to win points to an entity that has lost, uh, or not lost, but exposed our data to an attacker? I actually think yes. Blame may be a natural instinct, and punishment is very typical, especially. In some countries, they punish more than others. I don't think it helps. And if you fire a security person every time something goes wrong, you'll have to fire a lot of people and you have to hire a lot of people. Yeah. Do you really want to do that? And the ones you hired are people who got fired from some other job. Yeah, otherwise so they wouldn't take you won't job. find a blameless person anywhere. So if we could just settle and say, okay, guys and girls, we have all screwed up. We are all fallible. We are all vulnerable. Nobody's perfect. Let's not blame each other, let's do our best. Of course, you must have good intent. If somebody fails with bad intent or through sloppiness, I mean concrete, really bad sloppiness, then it's a different case. That's a case of, of negligence and we have to take action. But if somebody makes an honest mistake, we have to know that that's how human beings work. If we don't want honest mistakes anywhere, we should employ robots and just have AI-produced software. and then we won't be needed. <laughs> yeah, that's a different story there. I, I agree with you. I think fundamentally trust is the only asset, the only currency we'll eventually have. You know, like breaches will happen. And granted you want them to not happen and to happen very few and you don't want them to happen to you. But you know, as maybe as the trust world, is the only asset we ever had. Like possibly. how do you know? Yeah. Could be that trust <laughs> was the number one thing three thousand years ago. Yep. And it still is. I think today, you know, as there's more and more of these like breaches of major Presumably, trusted brands, you know, leaking their data or exposing, making security mistakes because everybody's valuable. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily they've done it. The way they've responded to it is massively important, and whether people will then subsequently go back to them and trust them with their data again because yeah. because they dealt with it, and you know that if they leaked your data, you know, first they will tell you. Second is you know they had all the good intent to prevent that from happening in the first place and they had your interests in mind and not theirs and then lastly is that they will learn from it and that they will do a better job look at equifax yeah. it's sad to have to mention a particular company yeah. but they had many vulnerabilities reported to them they refused to take action then when they got breached they refused to take responsibility then when they took responsibility they said we've fired the people in charge and then it turns out that it's even worse than what they originally said yeah. so sort of there you see Step after step after step of ignorance, arrogance, yeah. negligence, all these bad things. And you realize then that much better would be that when bad things happen, you admit it to everybody and say, okay, we've completely failed. Here's where we are. Please help us. And people will help. Yep. We have 200,000 hackers signed up for HackerOne. They are ready to help if somebody asks them to help. 
I think the Uber examples in the previous CEO, you know, were probably good examples there as well, or bad examples rather. And a lot of times things are hidden for a year. And I think a lot of that mistrust is coming up. And, you know, as the new CEO kind of states, you know, that's kind of a part of their goal is to, yes, improve security, but fundamentally kind of improve trust in those elements. So what type of role? So like GDPR and a lot of these kind of new regulations coming into play, but really GDPR as the, as the big sledgehammer are driving a lot of protection and some, some constraints around exposing data, right? And sort of exposing to customers the data has been leaked. It, it doesn't necessarily state like exactly how you need to do it. Again, bug bounty being one of those means, right? Some, some acknowledgement. Do you see legislation or sort of you know, governmental activity promoting these types of practices, like being a bit more dictated? It says like you need to have a bug bounty program, you know, for you to sort of qualify or score in this uh, We're in this getting level. there. Yeah, we're getting closer to it. It's not good if legislation micromanages things, so it needs to give a broad enough mandate. But I do believe that governments need to say that any organization owning or holding consumer information must have the ability to protect it in an appropriate way. And one of them includes receiving vulnerability reports from the outside and then enacting software fixes. We should mandate it for everybody. Have governments done it today? No, not fully, but we're getting there. In the US, the Department of Justice has published a framework for vulnerability disclosure programs. So then here's how you do it. If you're interested, do it like this. So they're saving a lot of, of time and money for customers. NIST has published their uh, security framework, which is excellent. The FTC is recommending this to every consumer-facing company. So we're getting there now. And in the US, they are passing laws now that the Department of Homeland Security must test the bug bounty program. So not all of these laws are perfect in how they were written, but they all drive in the right direction. Yeah. And I agree with you, GDPR, although it's in a way a monster and people are afraid of what will happen, it was the right mechanism. Here, a bunch of governments, the EU states are saying, we're done with this thing where vendors don't take responsibility. You are responsible. You must notify if you have a breach. If you don't, we will take a percentage of your revenues. And it's harsh, but I think that's what we need in today's world. So I believe, although I can say that cybersecurity is in a really sorry state right now, yeah. I do think the ship is already turning. Yeah. It will take time to fix everything, but we, we can see how decision makers on the public and private side are agreeing that we must take resolute action. Yeah, no, I agree. And I love that a lot of these elements fundamentally boil down to transparency. Like they boil yes. down to, yeah. you know, accept that you're imperfect and be able to have people kind of attack you and report issues. They boil down to, you know, when there has been a breach, which is, you know, sufficiently reasonable to happen, you have to own it up and you have to share it and you have to kind of inform the people whose data has been leaked and, uh, but uh, and guy, all those components. Those of us who drive transparency and promote it in the world, we know we have to keep doing it forever. Yeah. Transparency doesn't survive on its own. It has to be supported. You have to bring it to the new worlds. We had open source software, which was a huge movement. Now we need to take transparency into security. Yep. We need to take openness from open source into open APIs. We have to go to open data. All of this requires pioneers to drive it, demand it, rally people around it. Because if we stop, if we get complacent, yeah, the it natural instinct again. is don't talk about it. Yeah, right? exactly. And just sort of hide so it. So we must, at Hacker One, we've defined it as one of our company values. 
So we say default to disclosure, yeah. meaning unless there's a very good reason not to disclose, we will yeah. disclose. Be open. Whatever it is. I mean, yeah. not just security things, but anything in the company. We, we are driving an, a culture of openness. And I know it takes this daily discipline and commitment to yeah. stay. So I think you know we, we started from kind of the practical of the bug bounty and those components. We kind of went a little bit high into the stratosphere to talk about how society <laughs> sort of changes to uh, to address it. Going a little bit back down into it, let's maybe take a moment to talk about the other side of this. Like we talked about the recipient of these reports, you know, how do companies evolve it, companies owning it. Who's on the other side? Like who are the people that you see coming in and trying to hack? In, in the hackers. Is the hackers that are sort of yes. participating in, in finding the vulnerabilities. We now have 200,000 individuals signed up on our network saying, number. I am ready to hack. And of course, not all of them will hack, and some of them may be fake accounts or I don't know what. But it still shows a huge interest in the world to be an active white hat hacker. So we look at that group and say, who are they? Where did they come from? Because we have never really published sort of a recruitment ad for this. We just say, if you're hacking, sign up with us and now we have 200,000 of them. Many of them are young. So the youngest are 14 years old. They can be old as well, but many of them are, about half of our hackers are between 18 and 25. They are all over the world where you have a good level of basic education, you know, mathematical and STEM education, where they have a reasonable understanding of the English language. That's where we get them from, typically from big cities where young people don't have that much else to do. Mm -hmm. And they typically have security as an important part of their life. They may be studying it. They may be working as a security person in a company. They may be a pentester somewhere. They sort of are doing it as a day job. Okay. And then additionally, they hack to maintain their skill and get the thrill of finding a bug and the social aspect of talking to other hackers. Do you see... Bug boundaries used as an education entity. Like, do you see, you know, developers wanting to get into security, register to HackerOne to uh, try out, to like get some some real life experience, or or even better, you know, companies that build some form of like training program that revolves around finding vulnerabilities through these bug boundaries. That will be the best. We sometimes say that some of the best hackers are also developers, so they understand how software is developed, and vice versa the best software developers also understand hacking. So we would very much encourage it and welcome software developers to try out hacking on our platform and hackers who are on our platform to learn about software development because it just increases their skill. And then we work, when it comes to education, we work with universities today. And for instance, UC Berkeley, they have a course called Cyber War, I think is the name of it, where every student in order to graduate must sign up with HackerOne and submit real vulnerability reports. Otherwise, you can't pass. Hmm. So we're seeing now a great advancement in the learning and the blending of the two. Because here, and sorry, I'm getting philosophical again, but HackerOne and bug bounty programs isn't so much about security as it is about the software development lifecycle. And in the ideal state when all of this works, a bug bounty program is just the logical last step of the software development lifecycle, and it feeds back into the beginning. When we get there, it will be beautiful. Nobody will be 100% secure at any point, but we will be much closer to 100 yeah, than we are today. To do this. I think of bug bounties oftentimes as continuous monitoring. 
I mean, you, like one of the problems with security is that it doesn't have a natural feedback loop. You know, there's no bar that shows you that, you know, like your performance or your, you know, whatever, your CPU cycles, you can see degradation. You can see how they become worse over time and you yes. can anticipate a problem and you can set some alerts and it can go back. Security tends to like not hurt until it hurts really bad. There's no sort of natural element. And I like, you know, in, in the world of DevOps and the concepts of, continuous everything, really, you want some ongoing monitoring that shows you whether you're getting better or getting worse. And I think an active bug bounty program is one indication of that. Not as live as like a CPU cycle, uh, no, but, right. uh, but an indication of like how many, how many reports are you getting you know, at a certain period of time. And you know, once you've established some, some status quo, it should be some, some red flag when you deteriorate, right? You need to be able to explain, you know, I shipped new software, my CPU cycles went up, I understand it, I accept it. But if you haven't shipped some major new functionality and you have an uptick in, in, in new vulnerabilities that are being discovered, you know, maybe something's wrong. Maybe you need to go back and like invest in security training or, uh, or in security controls in your system. Very true. You said it. it the, the natural feedback loop for security in software. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So this was fascinating, and we can go on and on. You know, <laughs> I kind of ran out of time. Before I let you go, I want to ask you one last question. I like to ask every guest: if you had sort of one pet peeve around security, or like you know, one word of advice around security that you would give, you know, sort of a team looking to to up level, what would that be? Uh, it's not one. I'll package many into <laughs> one. But but first of all, we engineers and nerds we always think technology is everything, and the technology is the solution. That's incorrect. In security, humans are the solution. And not just the hackers who find things, but humans who take security seriously. And there, I always tell people that I find there are two things that build security, and maybe only those two things. One is discipline. You must be disciplined about what you do. It's not about whether you did it once. It is that you did it every single time and you never failed to do it. And the second thing is this agility, doing things quickly. Because when shit happens in security, it's all about how fast you can respond. Yeah. When you have those two principles, you don't need to worry about all the technology that the vendors are trying to sell to you. Because you will be able to build a very strong security posture based on those practices which are based in what human beings do. That's sort of the good news here. We don't need all that hardware to make ourselves secure. We just yeah. need human beings who are passionate and sort of committed to it. Uh, well, Martin, it's been great having you on. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Guy. This was wonderful. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones as well as over a hundred videos about building developer tooling companies, given by top experts in the field.